new supplement came out for fifth edition. It's been like a year. I know. It's well, you know, they've released adventures. Yeah, so it's been like a year. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Halls of Justice in New York City. I'm your host, Shane. And I'm your host, Ishan. And welcome to episode 68 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're starting small and seeing where it takes us as we discuss scale in RPGs. But first, the party defends a city under siege in the Morning Glory campaign. And later, the Storm Surge charges up her laser in the character Creation Forge. So just a couple of days ago, Tuesday, November 15th, a new supplement came out for 5th edition. It's been like a year. I know. So Volo's Guide to Monsters came out. Kind of a cool thing. It came out with uh, with a cover for widespread release and then a limited edition for hobby shops. So we've talked about it before, actually, a little bit on our show. And then we also guested on the Tome Show Roundtable to discuss all the preview material that had been released. So there's a link in the show notes now. You can go ahead and check that out. But... Now that it's actually out, we've got a copy in hand. We're looking through it, we're digging in, and we're going to have a full review next week for episode 69. Yeah, it's got a lot of words for a monster manual. Yeah, (laughs) So it's going to, (laughs) yeah. So just like our in-depth review of Sword Coast Adventures guide that came out a year ago, we're going to do the same thing. We're going to dig through it basically page by page and tell you whether or not it's worthwhile for you to buy and use in your game and what we actually think about it. Yeah, whether you should put it on your Christmas or your Hanukkah list or go pick it up right now or pass. We'll talk a little bit about the history of Volo as well. He's a wacky dude. Ugh, yeah. The whole book is like written in his voice and then like Elminster comes right. in and writes on top Volo of it. Are you team Volo or team Elminster? I hate them both. <laughs> but I just, I hate anybody who gives that many notes. So I guess I'm team Volo for being the original. Hey, I will say Elminster, if you see his build, so much multi-classing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah like well, that that guy dipped like crazy d- uh, well he's like mary sue 20 uh-huh. and then what <laughs> fighter three rogue one he's got some cleric for you know like why not yeah okay well now that we're getting into the realm of mary sue's <laughs> let's talk about the morning glory campaign and oh, our yes. good pal bell shaylor so morning glory was our three-year eberron campaign that ended about a year and a half ago we've been recapping and man are we getting close to the actual finale we are level 20. 20 oh yeah everybody's 20 yeah and the party has pursued the fiendish overlord belshalor and his undead minion arandis vol the lich queen into the actual silver flame and far from being a lovely paradise of paladins and templars there uh, turns out it's mostly desert and sand and sun and not in a good way they're actually in what Tyr Moran, the founder of the Church of the Silver Flame, calls the prison city of Tyr in Dark Sun. Yeah, we have basically found our way into a Dark Sun campaign for the <laughs> rest of this arc. <laughs> now, Tira explains that the Church of the Silver Flame has been a lie. For its entire 700-year history, everyone who has died committed to the flame has appeared here in this awful, literally godforsaken place where they are hunted by Belshalor's Templars so that their soul energy can be harvested and 
guess what? They're a coming. Four elemental Templars, one of fire, one of earth, one of air, and one of silt, are attacking the entire city. Now she says there are approximately 10,000 souls currently in the city, and the party needs to protect as many of them as possible, because, of course, for each one of them that dies, Belshalar grows a bit stronger. Yeah, you got 10,000 people to protect. That's not too many for six people, yeah? Yeah, so what do we do? Well, we hid them, (laughs) (laughs) step one. (laughs) So we kind of ushered them into the underground catacombs to kind of shield them from the immediate threat. Mm -hmm. And then being big, strong heroes, the party actually acted as real human shields, defending the populace from first a volley of burning rain that came from the sky. I think Bastion, the Warforged, literally like picked up a huge piece of like the ground like a, like a giant yeah so essentially boulder right because <laughs> right. he was a massive warforged dreadnought at this point lifted it above his head and just told everyone to like come hide under it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the world's largest umbrella right. <laughs> or largest parasol as it were <laughs> and the rest of you found ways to sort of bat away the flaming meteors yeah. many walls of force were forced <laughs> yes exactly <laughs> After that, the next volley were the ash worms, which are basically purple worms, but, you know, darker and grittier and more sandy, that burst from the ground near the entrances to the catacombs and just started gorging themselves on on the peasantry. They burst from the ground, and then when the party actually engaged them and destroyed them, they exploded in fire and acid. Kallik actually was very noble here because... Every time the ashworms spit acid and flame, which they did really often, the party had the opportunity to either leap out of the way, like make a dexterity saving throw to leap out of the way, uh, or stand there and take it full force right. so that it didn't hit all of the like the crowd of peasants behind them. Right. And remember, at this point, Kallik has finally like gained the trust of his wife's sword, right. like his dead wife's <laughs> sword. That is totally lawful good and is like, yes, we're going to be the best paladins we can ever be. So he just stood there every round being like, nope, I don't, I don't dodge. I um, I take it in the face. Yep. And the peasants, of course, were, well, when they weren't running, screaming for their lives, they were very grateful. So we eventually downed the Templars who attacked us. And there was a body count. I was actually surprised. I was keeping track of every single peasant that died, and only 785 of them were killed. Wait, by name? (laughs) They all have the same name. There goes George. Pavel. Pierce. (laughs) Mostly mostly Grack. I think they're all illiterate. (laughs) Just like most of the worshippers of the Church of the Silver Flame. (laughs) Well, you know. No shifters. Well, they don't have a soul, so (laughs) no point. There you go again. Um, but yeah, so the total count was 785. Mm-hmm. Dead. But all of the remainder of the 10,000 peasants were safe underground. And the party actually defeated the four Templars. Tyr was saying, when the raids usually occur, of course, they take as many people as possible. They harvest them and then they return to the ziggurat with the, the, this energy. When people had been killed, you could see like the energy sort of being sucked into the ziggurat. But now... It, it's quite possible the Templars won't return, at least until new ones are recruited. But there's no time for that. (laughs) (laughs) Because now Tira says, if you're looking for Belshalor, he resides in the Golden Tower, the one that's looming over the entire city. And, well, since 
the party knows that there's very little time before Kyber Seffen Long Shadows is over and Bell Shaler completes his ritual to remake the entire multiverse, they take the shortest of rests. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and head to the tower. It's too bad we didn't try and play prevent defense. <laughs> he needs people to die in order to power his ritual. We could have just kept everybody alive. We have a doctor. But uh, yeah, into the tower we went. And we'll find out what happened next, next week. So this week, we're talking about scale in RPGs. Um, Shane, what does that even mean? So this is sort of a listener question in the sense that I'm a listener. <laughs> so <laughs> so I wanted to talk about this because it's, it's one of the things that I've kind of struggled with when I read new games or when I'm conceptualizing scenarios or even you know when I'm running games is how does one set of mechanics cover the activity of an adventurer who's trying to sneak around a corner without the guards noticing and also an entire party traveling across a desert dealing with dehydration and getting lost and you know monsters trying to eat them and and all of those sorts of threats in a way that conveys the scale of both of these endeavors both from a time and and scope perspective as well as sort of a dramatic effect perspective yeah and i think in practice even if players and gms aren't necessarily thinking about this topic specifically when you're playing the game there's often the question of when do you roll? How often do you roll? And what does a single roll represent? Like, I think we're actually doing this in our Dark Zone game right now. We're doing intercession emails where we're interrogating a prisoner. Okay, so one person makes a persuasion check, talks to the prisoner. That's a die roll. The prisoner responds. Then you say something else to the prisoner. Is that another persuasion check? Right. Is, is it the same persuasion the check? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, we ran into this in Rogue Trader as well because we were using skill checks for the individual party members, mm-hmm. right, as they're gallivanting around on the planet, whining and dining and negotiating trade deals and fighting chaos marines. The best and, trade deals. The best trade deals. <laughs> gonna get rid of, we're going to get some great new trade deals. If we can't do that, we're going to get some good trade deals. <laughs> but then we also use the same skill checks for directing a crew of 10,000 people on a mile-long spaceship navigating through the warp. But that's obvious, Shane, because those people don't matter. <laughs> yeah, I, right, yeah. <laughs> So it's it, there's some like cognitive dissonance there that I, I want to explore. Okay. But what exactly do you mean by scale? Because if we're in the halls of justice, we must be talking about fairness, right? Not talking about fairness. Okay. That was just a bad pun. Are we talking about uh, dragon skin? Not talking about dragon skin or armor. Okay. We're talking about maps. Not talking about maps. You can just resize the grid if you want to. Okay. I'm out of synonyms. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking about the scope of a player's turn when they get a chance to control the narrative. So when you're acting as your character or acting as whoever you control as a player, what does that mean? What does that action encompass? So it's it's things like how much time or activity does that turn cover or which characters and actions and reactions and follow-ups and risks are encompassed by that turn. It's pretty malleable, yeah? Oh, yeah, this is definitely a... <laughs> like the philosophical game design topic and much less of a of the type of thing we're going to draw hard and fast rules from but i think the thought exercise is worthwhile because it's something that i'm constantly doing as i plan scenarios yeah it's something you need to think about because it changes not just system to system or game to game or player to player but within a particular game or campaign it changes constantly right and I think one of the challenges is that many games address this with a sort of metagame distinction between narrative time, when you're sort of 
telling the story and everyone is sitting around and figuring out, you know, what happens on a more macro scale and then drilling down to initiative rounds in D&D or combat usually mm-hmm. where things are happening almost in bullet time. You know, you sit, you think about what's going to happen within the six second period and then act that out in order. Yeah. And the challenge I have here, it's, it's where that narrative meets the mechanics, right? Because while your story might put equal importance on two activities. So repelling a bandit attack is just as deadly to you as crossing the Sahara Desert, right? Both of which can end your character's story just like that. But the mechanics don't put the same amount of weight towards crossing the desert usually, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So how do, how do you convey the scale and the, the danger of crossing a desert when so many of the mechanics are driven towards well, how do I avoid getting attacked by the bandit's dagger when I move over here to help my friend and give him a healing potion, right? It's like we get really drilled down in certain areas and then we just, these huge swaths of narrative get very light coverage of mechanics. Yeah, it's that bias toward action, I think, that RPGs typically have. Right. To me, it it can just end up with this sort of hollow experience of, you know, we're, we're the first group to cross that desert. It took three skill rolls. That doesn't feel nearly as big of an accomplishment to me as a player as killing a lich, you know, even though liches die all the time. <laughs> liches get stitches. <laughs> yeah, it's something that different kinds of media are much better at portraying than RPGs. You know, we have expedition porn type films all the time. Those do an excellent job of making those scenarios seem really difficult and conveying everything that went into that accomplishment. Yeah, like, uh, like how would you do 127 hours in an RPG? Oh, God, it would be so boring. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's been another hour. Make another roll. Yeah, it's all right. Now you're exhausted. I cut off my arm. (laughs) (laughs) Done. Easy. Okay, make a save versus blood loss. Right. (laughs) You fail. Okay, you're dead. You succeed. You're fine. Right. Uh, But it hurts a lot. Okay. Make an athletics check with disadvantage because you're missing an arm. (laughs) But like it really hurts, right? <laughs> like like a lot. Okay, does your character give up? No. You know, very intense, dramatic situation that just doesn't get modeled well, mm-hmm. and, and that's sort of where my struggle is. And this is the ranger problem, right? Like we've talked about how the ranger is so focused on the quote unquote exploration pillar of the game that they often don't get cool things to do, or not rewarding things to do. You know, mm-hmm. like being the boss of exploration is really underwhelming so what kinds of things have we done to try to mitigate this in game so we have we've definitely done skill checks and played with the frequency of it or added random encounters i think they kind of cover the same sort of thing which Mm -hmm. is take the mechanics that you have and just apply them more stringently to the exploration or, or the the broader scale zoomed out activities the you know overland travel and that sort of thing so this is something you did with Zendrick when we were crossing through the the shifting jungles. Yeah. In canon, one of the biggest challenges you face in Zendrick is the landscape itself. You know, it's difficult to tell what direction you're going in. You could happen upon a random biome. There are aberrant Tyrannosaurus Rexes and killer drow and scary giants. Yeah, but but how do you convey that at the table if ultimately the purpose of this jungle in our story is just to make it difficult to get to the drow queen. Right, and then ultimately the the mechanics make it so that success means nothing happens. Right, exactly. <laughs> we survive. 
great. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's our steady state. Yeah, yeah. Right. we always survive or there's no game. Right. So, yeah, I think it's unfortunate that not facing a tribe of fire giants in like bloody combat is what you get for doing well. Yeah. Or not getting lost or, mm-hmm. you know, avoiding that extremely dangerous biome. Or it, It's it's also the problem with the, like, scouts, right? Mm. If you identify the threat and you can skirt around it, from a character perspective, that's great, right? You've avoided a, an encounter. You've kind of done the smart thing. But from a player perspective, combat is kind of the fun part. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you've just taken one encounter that the GM had planned and threw it out the window. Yeah, you usually have mutually exclusive abilities, things that you can use in narrative time and things you can use in initiative order round by round. Yeah. Sucks not to be able to use both. Right, right. I think we're doing a better job of it with Dark Sun, which Angelo is running, and he put together with our help a pretty comprehensive method of dealing with exhaustion checks and traveling through the desert. Right. I think we're still determining exactly like how rewarding that is, but but I think it is conveying a better notion that just surviving really is success. Yeah, and what we've done there is we've taken the exhaustion rules for hot climates from the DMG and just turned up the difficulty so that it it ramps up over time and you gain levels of exhaustion pretty quickly. Which in 5th edition is really difficult to deal with. Yeah, exhaustion takes a long rest to clear one level. So when when you get to two, you're in big trouble. I I think the other thing there is it's very resource-focused, as a setting right like one of the fundamental questions of dark sun is whether you're going to have enough water tomorrow to make it through the day you were pointing out bandits a lot of times raid caravans just to take their resources Mm -hmm. you know it's not about money it's just about hey you've got water and we need it like you said we'll see over time if that plays out as something that's really rewarding or if that's the kind of thing that we ultimately just decide you know what this is kind of getting in the way of the other stuff we want to do in Dark Sun. Can we kind of move past this with maybe a more simplified mechanic? And I think what's happening is we've sort of dug into the minutia for Dark Sun. You know, when in traveling through Zendrik, it was really maybe a couple checks a day in order to determine if you were going in the right direction or like what kind of hazards you either avoided or came across. In Dark Sun, we're making checks every single hour, which really drills down to a very up-close perspective of the characters. Mm-hmm. Whereas in moving in the other direction, I think, worked really well for Rogue Trader. When we were doing warp travel, one single D10 roll sometimes determined what had happened over the course of an entire year in the campaign. The D10 roll for what was the event that occurred. Oh, right, yeah, the warp travel table. <laughs> <laughs> And I think, actually, in my experience, that's probably the largest scale a single role has ever actually been. From a, from a time perspective? Time and also just events. You know, just, the number yeah. of events that are actually encapsulated by a single role. Right. Yeah, I, and this is a common problem with certain specialized archetypes, too. Like, the pilot or the driver comes to mind as mm-hmm. well, is when you are drilled in super focused on the things that make that t- character tick. So spaceship combat or driving the getaway car, those moments tend to be relatively rare. So you're trying to throw a bone to that player and then you lose all sense of scale in the rest of the the narrative because you've got to be so drilled in on, on rewarding the mechanics that they've created mm-hmm. or, or not created, but the mechanics that they've chosen to use for their character, right? Because you want to share that spotlight. You want to give them a chance to shine, but doing that can be 
so hyper-focused on that, like so myopic that you can kind of lose sight of what we're even doing here as we're winding through the streets and, and trying to add narrative heft to what essentially is driving from one place to another. So what is a good way to sort of find that middle ground between having one player making nine checks to turn left? Right, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or having that same player make one check so everything's fine yeah, for an entire home. hour yeah. Right? Yeah, they don't do anything else. Right. I, well, I think the first thing is you got to look at the mechanics of the game you're in, right? Like, like I said, if you have somebody who's chosen the pilot as their archetype, you need to use the pilot rules because they've chosen that as mm-hmm. their thing. If you've got players who have the pilot skill and no other mechanics driven behind it, I think you have a little more flexibility and the players have sort of said, this isn't super important to us. So to me, like where you choose to to scale that kind of encounter is in part tied to how the players have decided they want to handle those encounters by picking their characters. Mm-hmm. But the, the worst thing you can do is invalidate a bunch of mechanical choices by ignoring that section of mechanics, right. especially if you don't warn the player that's happening. So then how do you know how many checks to make or rolls to make i don't know i think it's a feel thing right that goes to the the core of the question is is how do you determine what that right scale is mm-hmm. how did you feel about 4e skill challenges because those really codified the number of rolls you needed to make right you had to succeed this many times before you failed this many times i've used it i've done that outside of 4e <laughs> you know and i know skill challenges are one of the more controversial parts of fourth edition mm-hmm. The idea that, you know, once you hit X number of successes, the narrative doesn't matter anymore. You've moved on past that is a little wonky, you know, and and we use those. uh, If you remember in our Pirates game, I I use sort of a modified version of that. Mm -hmm. And as we got closer to the successes, it was sort of incumbent on me as the GM to drive you guys towards resolving it. You know, it's like if you're on your fifth success and you only need one more you have to be doing activities that are going to get you out of the challenge. And there needs to be something that tells the players, hey, you're on the right path. Because like narratively, there's not really a difference between three successes and four successes unless you come up with one. Uh, literally, other than how you scale those successes. Yeah. You know, right? If, if you allow for slightly more great stuff to happen on that roll, then you're at the same point. So Yeah, and that was a huge problem with early 4E skill challenges is that you just sort of kept role playing and making these checks without necessarily knowing how you were doing. Yeah, it's like it's like you're trying to sneak through a crowd unnoticed, and it's like, cool. I just I double back, right? And I wander back towards my target, and I'll double back again. And like, have we hit it yet? No. I, okay. Oh well, that guy hit the last success, but I'm still in the middle of this crowd now. Like, mm-hmm. what's going on in our narrative? I think it was good combining the four E style skill challenges with some of the skill challenge variety that you used in Dark Heresy. Which is not a codified mechanic. That was something At all, I yeah. totally made up. So Dark Heresy uses degrees of success. So you can succeed at something, and then the degrees of success, the basically the percentage beyond what you needed that you succeed by, give you extra bonuses. And I just used the net degrees of success. Because I figured usually you guys succeed with two to three degrees Occasionally you'll fail. Usually your failures are relatively close. So if I use a D10, you guys all get one turn to kind of do a thing and make a roll. Whatever the degrees of success are on that roll, I'll total them up and I'll roll a D10. (laughs) If you roll underneath, 
everything turned out great. And if you rolled above it, then the outcome was bad. And we'll narrate that. Yeah, I liked that degrees of success mattered. Because in a fourth edition skill challenge, you succeed or you fail and that gets tallied. Yeah. But it doesn't matter how well you did. Like you could have blown a persuasion check out of the water and then someone barely fails a stealth check and like they cancel each other out. Yeah. But with degrees of success, it was nice that the amount of time or information or success that was covered by a single role was dependent upon the outcome of that role. So a wild success, right? Let's say like five degrees of success actually got us closer to the goal where we needed to be. Then a relatively routine failure set you back. And in the same way, if one person had nine degrees of failure, like it was basically over. Like we could have kept rolling dice if we wanted to, but like there was there was no way that we were going to get out of this. It was going to be a long shot. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But, you know, leaving it up to a die roll at the end, that long shot could have hit, you know, and I always rolled it publicly so that you guys, <laughs> you knew what you were hoping I rolled under. <laughs> <laughs> Even that, though, has some challenges because the skills aren't perfectly mapped to that, mm-hmm. right? And And certain abilities gave you modifiers in certain situations that just couldn't come up within the context of a skill challenge you know and that's i think another problem that that you can run into if the mechanics are scaled towards a very personal interaction and you're trying to stretch the scale of a of an encounter over an hour or a day or something those no longer really make sense yeah so sometimes it's it makes more sense to move in the opposite direction and actually pull that focus out you know rather than making everything about a die roll you can and we've done this before have a much more narrative focus you kind of specialize in montages i like to use montages in a lot of things montage (laughs) i think i'm gonna name my first kid montage yeah yeah oh that would be a good name yeah or a good superhero name montage jackson his his super power is just his ability to tell stories in like discrete clips (laughs) (laughs) He's basically Foghorn Leghorn. Yeah. <laughs> well, I do declare. <laughs> I, tell, I, tell, I tell you what. Uh, yeah, I, I've actually used the the sort of narrative focus outside of montages as well, even in combat. So that's how I run mass combat, which I've kind of mostly had to avoid with you guys. But we did run a mass combat in, in Rogue Trader. I think it's really better to run mass combat in a sort of like hand-wavy, esoteric way. But but even that's weird. So so what I did for mass combat was I let you guys use skills to, you know, like social skills could inspire the troops that you were leading, or I let you make combat roles, right? Use combat abilities to simulate you leading from the front, and that was sort of the effect of your entire unit. Mm-hmm. Um, but it still runs into weird things, like how does how does a psyker lead from the front using his one spell or you know same thing with a wizard right well i use fireball to eliminate the enemy squad well how do you how do you map that to you know a third level spell versus the paladin wading into combat and rolling two attacks you know how do you how do you narratively balance those two mechanical concepts if you're fitting these combat mechanics into a narrative structure yeah because the paladin hasn't spent many resources by just attacking twice right so if the effect is the same as the wizard who is using a third level spell slot which is a very limited resource what is the benefit for the wizard to do that and are you then sort of preventing the wizard from doing that in the future because they'll say well no we should just do something that we can do all the time yeah and and 
the problem here is over the course of an hour, right? I know the paladin is making more than two attacks mm-hmm. when he wades into melee. Is the wizard making more than two fireballs? Should he be charged extra spell slots for using a fireball, right? Like, how does that work in a game that focuses on resource management? Right. Fortunately, in 5th edition, we have cantrips. <laughs> well, and that's what it <laughs> comes down to, right? Is like, why would a wizard ever use any other spell? For, for a long slog? Yeah, for absolutely. For that kind of slog, right? It, mm-hmm. And so the mechanics are kind of working against what I'm looking for in the narrative. So, so figuring out that scale is just constantly a challenge for me. Yeah, what does an attack roll mean? Right. I mean, it's even something that games sort of fudge in general when you're talking about the combat round, you know, is one roll, one swing. Yeah. Or is it a series of parries back and forth where one has finally has the potential to break through the defense? Right. Or, I mean, even the concept of the six second round, that's Mm -hmm. non-sequential actions, right? Because the same six seconds are covering the first guy in initiative order and the last nice. guy in initiative order. Mm-hmm. If you move 30 feet away on the end of your turn, that's in the same six seconds as the guy who's attempting to <laughs> chase you and attack you. So, you know, if if we're running together and we're ne- we start next to each other, you don't go 30 feet and then I go 30 feet. We move 30 feet together. <laughs> like, that's weird, right? That's that's not how things happen. You know, in second edition, when everything was theater of the mind and my group was young teenagers, we would all declare our action. And then... The DM would say, okay, all of these things happen at the same time. I, it was crazy. That seems very hard to run, but like diplomacy style, you just write <laughs> down your orders yeah, and basically. they all happen at once. <laughs> so what, what's the takeaway for using narrative and montage to, to cover these types of scenarios? I think it's a useful addition to the toolkit. There are definitely times when you're going to want to slip into a very narrative way of telling this story because dealing with the minutia that would otherwise be required isn't something that's going to be fun at the table or really maybe even trackable yeah i definitely agree i think it's helpful to use the mechanics that you have available to determine the direction and then use narrative to sort of fill in the blanks right so it's very unrewarding (laughs) i think at a table to have your ranger cover 90 feet in the forest and then come to a strange crossing and then okay well we've determined we now go west so then we go here and then we come to this strange tree and it's like i'm following them through the forest right and and i don't need to narrate every 30 foot increment of that but maybe if we hit the highlights as we traverse the forest we saw they uh went into the stream and you 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 could tell that they had tried to wash off some of the blood of the combat and then they had uh headed east in a direction that didn't make any sense to you and then you you found a cave that they stayed in and then you know it's just like let's just keep moving forward and instead of putting a question mark at every turn and that's definitely something that happens in other media i mean you use the like 127 hours example but that's actually pretty rare where you're sort of like sitting there for so much time where you're sort of the audience is present for all of the potential turning points yeah. You know, usually in these like long journeys uh, or quest type films, you can view the initial decisions. But then once the same kind of de- decision is being made, it isn't shown. Right. The first time you come to a crossing and have to decide, do I go west or east? You see that. Maybe you make that roll. The next 10 times, you don't need to. Like you 
you either did well overall based on the initial role or one subsequent role or you did poorly but you still want to narrate that those occurred you just don't leave them up to chance any longer right and i think it's helpful to make that a group activity right kind of pass that around the group of so what was another challenge that we encountered in this forest trying to track the bandits something to that degree so investigation is another area where you can get super bogged down in details mm-hmm. right uh you could you could be turning over every object on a desk in a dungeon you know kind of the the tomb of horrors right. method of all right well i go inspect the mouth of the green demon will you lose your hand you know <laughs> like or i investigate the room right and you find so the 10 foot pole problem of that and then you've also got sort of the the need for preparation and and planning and all that sort of stuff that you that goes into going into the dungeon right so did you bring your 10 foot pole or are you a competent adventurer so mm-hmm. you have a pack full of useful stuff you know so i, I want to call out gumshoe that has a cool mechanic for how they handle that one they have a an ability called preparedness which is literally just rolling to see hey do you have that thing that you probably should have did you plan ahead for that yes you did because you have high preparedness it's like the good version of kender yeah (laughs) (laughs) Um, but then they also have the concept of spending your resources versus rolling against your resources so by having points you have like kind of a baseline competency you can spend points to gain information or gain resources or, or put that into effect and then you can roll for sort of extraordinary stuff in that investigation phase of the game and i'm not sure that that tracks super well because you can't really spend like your bonus <laughs> in D. but the idea of you're proficient in this ability so you can just do things now i think is helpful from a narrative perspective right sort of ignoring the roles for low-level things and you know everyone agrees at least implicitly, that there is a threshold below which you don't need to roll for things. Nobody makes rolls to eat right. or to get dressed <laughs> yeah, or to walk across the room. 5% of the time you would choke on your dinner. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but when you're investigating, you know, I, I check the desk. Okay. Is there a separate roll for the front drawer and the side drawer and then searching for false compartments? Do you need to actually say... Oh, I like look under the pencil holder well, and I like take apart the uh, eraser case. Yeah. Is is that a role at all? Right. Right. If, if I'm investigating the room, is the role just I do all that stuff? Or if I decide I'm going to go dig through every single drawer of this desk and I'm going to point them out to you, GM, one at a time, do I still need to roll at all? And sometimes this will depend, even though the situation may be nearly exactly the same. I search the desk is probably not a role if... There's nothing weird about that desk and there's no false bottom. Or maybe there is a false bottom, but you spend long enough, you find it. Mm-hmm. If there's a trap set inside the drawer, that's a roll. Right. Yeah. How do you feel about multiple characters making the same roll at a time? Because that's another question of scale, right? Is it is it an individual action mm-hmm. that the, the role is representing? And, and I'm thinking like a persuasion check, right? Mm-hmm. Like we're, we're all going to try and persuade the shopkeeper to give us a better price. So we roll six times one after another until one of us succeeds <laughs> or you know the old question of like what prevents me from just taking 20 and just trying until i convince him or is the mechanic covering just the the narrative act of 
we as a group are going to try and convince him you are making the role using your bonus and that's going to work for the party. Yeah, I think it's a combination of like determining what works for mechanics, but then also verisimilitude, like what makes sense within the actual narrative of the game world. So if there are six people standing in a shop, it doesn't make sense that one person could talk to the shopkeeper and they'd be like, no, like go screw. And then like the next person in line could stand up and be like, well, wait, hold on. And then that could happen six times in a row. Like you would get kicked out. <laughs> yeah. You know? <laughs> But I think this is often modeled by having the situation affected by each role. It, at least, or at least it happens a lot in interaction. But I don't know that it necessarily carries over to other sort of more static situations, and maybe it should. So for example, if the first person screws up the persuasion with the shopkeeper, that shopkeeper's disposition decreases towards the party. Right, so the second one has disadvantage. Or, right, or, or it's a just higher more difficult. DC. Exactly. Yeah. And eventually you get to a point where now they're hostile. Like, it doesn't matter what you say. And in fact, if you keep going, they might just attack you or, you know, kick you out of the shop. That doesn't usually happen when you're doing something uh, like searching a room. But maybe it should. Like, the first person searched and, like, they put their fingerprints on everything because they screwed up. So, like, the next person, when they're searching, their little, like, CSI light doesn't help them at all. Right. You know, and they've got to, like, dig around the other person's footprints so that's more difficult. Yeah, but uh, then we get into a competence question, right? Like, why would a competent investigator leave fingerprints everywhere? You know, and so, like, I feel like... Again, you, back to the role, yeah. You could just go down this rabbit hole trying to figure this out from a scale perspective. Well, I think it's it's an either-or, right? Either there is a role or there's not a role. And that's the, the first decision that you make. And if there's not a role, well, then it just happens. If there is a role, then if one person's allowed to make the role, why isn't everyone allowed to make the role? Yeah. That, I think, then is a question for what makes sense in the game world. So if, for example, you're all trying to sneak across like a dark pasture to get away from guards who are following you, everyone makes that role. Sometimes I would say, no, you don't need everyone to do it, right? You know, well, so and, that's, and that's the thing. Is in like, terms of verisimilitude, it makes sense for everyone to make the role. Narratively, you could say, okay, you guys try and sneak across. Like, Who's leading you in that process? You make the role, and that's the role for the group. You know, like That's, that's fine, because if you kind of zoom out of every individual action and you focus now on the group as a whole escaping stealthily could just be one role well again verisimilitude if there's one person who is pathfinding and trying to figure out the direction that the party goes it doesn't matter how terrible the rest of the party is at this job they just do it and they use their normal bonus but if you're trying to sneak somewhere if everyone else is terrible at it it's going to make it tougher for you so should you really be allowed to like make your stealth roll at your normal bonus or should there be some sort of hindrance because of everyone else you're trying to bring along with you maybe there is a hindrance or or we could say you know narrative as you narrate your success you need to account for that you have three people in armor how are you dealing with that problem what do you do to to get out of that problem because i know you succeeded i saw your role so narrate that now I like a middle ground, basically sort of going back to what you did in Dark Heresy, which is it is a group role. Everybody rolls, but in aggregate, how well did everyone do? Right. And because one person is really, really competent. They can cover for the less competent members. Exactly. And yeah. it's not, you know, actually, maybe they do just carry them, right. you know, but more likely they say, don't step there. Right. Hold on. 
move now right. that sort of thing like i i'm pouring grease in the joints of your armor now <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> that's gonna be a problem tin man <laughs> that's right <laughs> idiot why are you so shiny right and, and the key here right is however you address it you, you have to put it back on the players to explain that outcome you know however you determine what the outcome is you put the narrative on people to explain it not the dice yeah and i think that is something important to remember when whenever you're making this decision is that the goal is to tell a story. So if you are hand-waving something and saying, you don't need to roll for that, like, okay, you investigate the the drawer, have them explain how they're doing that. You know, where did they look? And, you know, if there is something in there, well, one of the places that they looked is the place where it turns out to be. Right. It it doesn't need to be, oh, well, it was in the false bottom on the left side. And if they didn't say they were looking there, like they don't find it. Or if, if it does need to be there for some other reason, right, then don't give the narrative control to the player. Right. Simply tell them where they found it and let the player interpret that accordingly. And whatever decision you're making, don't do what we're doing right now and then explain it to the players afterward. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, you guys caught on to what I was doing with my skill challenge move in Dark Heresy? Mm. Well, in Rogue Trader? Eventually, yeah. A- after the first time, you know, after I, like, oh, how many successes? Right, cool, I'll write that down. Like, I think the second time you noticed about halfway through that you were... I think he's adding them together. Right, yeah. <laughs> it was still a nice change-up from normal D&D where it was like, uh, no, I don't make that roll because I'm terrible at it, so you do it. Right. Oh, wait, I'm forced to do it? Oh, garbage. <laughs> That's what I what I really like to avoid is the the two the two things. One is the, the repeated skill checks until somebody in the party succeeds. And the other is one person making all of the skill checks because they're the skill monkey right and so it's like you're, you're like running around the room doing all of these things like crazy while other players are saying well i'm not good at that so i'm gonna have him do it mm-hmm. you know like you came up with the idea you roll it we'll deal with it you know and so part of it is also as a gm not being so strict on the outcomes when you're asking the fish to be out of water right i don't know i i'm curious to see what our listeners think about this because it's like i said it's something that we have tackled a bunch of different ways i don't know that we've got like a one true way of doing it you know it's very system dependent but I, i'm very curious to see dear listeners what you've done in your games how you address these types of things and, and whether you do it one way or you try different approaches do you hear that Ishan? i think that is the sound of a single d20 roll determining the outcome of my entire life and to be fair i think <laughs> I think it was probably an 11 <laughs> now that I think about it, but like I've been grinding for years. Yeah. Unfortunately for you, that DC was super high. Yeah. So we should probably move on to the character creation forge. Let you I'll go ahead and reroll. Someday. <laughs> Before we rebuild Ishan as a character. With a build that doesn't suck. <laughs> let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPT Cast. You can also email us if you can fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrillCast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. So this week, we're building the Storm Surge. Um, is this a is this a human hurricane? Uh, I, I'm thinking maybe there's some lightning or thunder damage in here. Definitely that. Yeah, okay. this is a spellcaster who has mastery over the elements. 
or at least two of them. Okay. <laughs> Lightning and thunder. <laughs> uh, this is a caster who harnesses the fury of the storm and channels it into his or her magical abilities. So did we basically just go through the books and like search for everything that said storm and then throw it into a build? Uh, yeah, but we left out Druid. Uh, poor Druid. Yeah, so couldn't make that one work. That's fine because Druid 20 is fine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so non-Druid edition. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's the build? It is Storm Sorcerer 18 and Tempest Cleric 2. You know, we've talked a lot in the past about combining these two, but I don't know that we've actually ever done it in the Forge. Yeah, I don't think so. I hope not. Otherwise, we're repeating. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, just the the two class features that combo really well. But we'll, we'll get to that. Yeah, so I, let's talk about it. The Channel Divinity for the Cleric, um, for the Tempest Cleric, allows you to, once per short rest, maximize the damage on any die roll for lightning and thunder damage. Now, mechanically speaking, this is basically forcing a crit, right? Because you're doubling your expected damage. Right. So, you know, if you're casting lightning bolt and you're rolling your 8d6, those are all sixes now. Right, which is the best because it's an area effect. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It's a line of people who are really hurting. (laughs) And then the storm sorcerer gains other abilities tied to lightning and thunder damage uh, and as well as having a pretty good offensive spell list the sorcerer will give you some utility around non-thematic spells and then your attack spells will be primarily lightning and thunder plus some nice flexible casting and a bunch of meta magic options right so the cleric gives you your usual handy cleric utility spells um, so the two cantrips that are great guidance and resistance uh, you also get bless and you get healing spells. Which is, of course, usually what an arcane caster is missing. Yeah, so that gives you a ton of utility and flexibility. Uh, you also get this Wrath of the Storm ability, which gives you a good use for your reaction. If you get hit with an attack, you can use your reaction and hit them with damage, which is handy. It's only 2d6, but at 14th level, the Storm Sorcerer actually gets an improved version of this. So it ends up scaling sort of internal to the build, which I think is kind of cool that, you know, two different abilities do similar things. The uh, the Sorcerer's ability at 14th level Storm's Fury causes damage equal to Sorcerer level. I really like that this is a Sorcerer who is really party friendly. They're not necessarily handing out buffs, but they can really dish out pinpoint damage. Uh, at the same time, they can also heal. And then, of course, like your capstone Sorcerer, Storm Sorcerer ability is that like, you and all your allies fly. Yeah, so Windsoul gives you a <laughs> flying speed of 60 feet, or you can reduce your flying speed to 30 feet and give flying speed to all of your allies. Uh, technically, it's limited by your charisma, but you're a charisma caster, so yeah. you'll have plenty of charisma. <laughs> so we were thinking about what would be sort of the best spells or combos to go along with the Channel Divinity. Yeah, and it's cool because there's actually a lot of different ways to hit it. So your cantrip itself, uh, the Shocking Grasp is the lightning-based cantrip. That scales pretty well, and if you happen to crit on it, that's a good use of it. Yeah, pretty much any of these spells that have an attack roll, if you crit, pop that channel Channel divinity. divinity. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Witch Bolt is another one. 
Um, that gives you that, that's always good for sorcerers because it gives you sustained damage as an action, mm-hmm. and then it frees you up to cast spells with your bonus action right. because you can use quicken spells, meta magic. But if you scale it up a little bit, high risk, high reward. If you cast it at a higher level, the initial damage requires an attack roll, and you can deal quite a few d12s. Yeah, <laughs> you know, for a third level slot, you're dealing three d12 on that first attack. If you happen to crit, no, that's six d12 maxed. <laughs> so 72 damage yeah then you won't have to worry about using your action to maintain it because it'll just be dead yeah <laughs> no longer a concentration spell <laughs> but even lightning bolt is great you know if you can get a couple creatures lined up maximizing 8d6 and then you got chain lightning <laughs> the real gem <laughs> and since you are a sorcerer ask your GM if it's twinnable because there's definitely a case to be made yeah it's that's a weird one yeah <laughs> The, the twin spell and chain lightning interacts in a weird way and then I'm even more confused as to how the channel divinity would affect it if you can twin it. In any case, I love the idea of being in a small enclosed room surrounded by enemies and just frying every single one of them. Yeah, because I, I, yeah, <laughs> it can hit... Each casting can hit up to four creatures. If you're surrounded by eight creatures and you just channel divinity. <laughs> right, and it just arcs its way around all of the hostages and your allies. Yeah. <laughs> It's a, it's kind of like Iron Man's thing, yeah. Where he's got those like super targeted, uh, like rockets that just kill a whole bunch of people who are surrounding him. It's basically that in fantasy form. You can't do it that often, but you won't need to do it that yeah. often. <laughs> you do it once, people learn. <laughs> and then, of course, Storm Sorcerer gives you a bunch of mobility um, because you've got different ways to to trigger a ten foot move, so you can kind of move in and out of threat range without worrying about mm-hmm. it. And you can also, you also gain abilities that will give you defenses against lightning and thunder damage. So eventually you'll become immune. Right. And that mobility makes it much easier to pinpoint the targeting of your spells. Because as a sorcerer, you are less able than some other builds to actually determine who gets hit. Yeah. All right. So Shane, how did your storm surge get to be? I think my storm surge began as a storm sorcerer right? so was probably touched by like a storm giant somewhere in his bloodline and kind of carries through some of that magic i would really like that as like a goliath or a half giant but yeah doesn't, like that doesn't super work out well fear bulg yeah but even yeah we'll <laughs> see i don't know about all that <laughs> but uh but yeah so you know maybe some half giant blood somewhere in the bloodline uh kind of gain these abilities right and having an affinity for the storm was naturally recognized by the clerics of a uh, god of the tempest mm. sort of as a maybe like a prophet or you know someone sort of touched by the storm uh someone that has been blessed by a deity and so the clerics might bring him into their church right uh sort of train them in their temple and uh, you you kind of learn about the god of the storm. Even though that isn't the source of your power, it's still maybe some handy tricks that you can throw into the mix. Uh, because, of course, any god of the Tempest would be thrilled to have, regardless of the source, that sort of fury unleashed upon the world. It is, after all, called the god of the Tempest and not the god of rebirthing lightning. Right, or gentle rains upon the crops. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> How about you? I like the idea of bloodline but i think i would take it a 
even a little bit further. I think my character is uh, a scion of a storm deity and perhaps a, a direct descendant, like a child. And their destiny is to ultimately become a demigod. And then I think at the end of their arc, they will decide, you know, do I become a loyal servant and exemplar of my deity and or my parent or do I usurp them? Do I kill my dad? <laughs> I think you know the answer. <laughs> I'd probably play them uh, beginning as like maybe an air genasi. Oh, that's a, yeah, that's a really good one. Um, and, and so these, these sorcerer abilities are sort of a manifestation of their own biology. Mm-hmm. You know, they, there is a divine spark within, like a literal divine spark within them. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it just lashes out and they, they can't help it. So, you know, one good way to try to maintain that control within a mortal vessel is training in the temple. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they go for a bit, but it's just way more fun to take off the armor and just unleash the full fury of the storm. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking of armor, that's one of the handy things that Cleric gives you is heavy armor mm-hmm. uh, and martial weapons. So you're capable of just beating things if you need to. I like the idea that, and you see this a lot in fiction sometimes, is you have you know the charismatic leader, and then when they finally sort of come into their own and become like a leader of of people, uh, particularly often in a war, you then see them arrayed in like this heavy armor with their spear and like their helmet. And it looks a little bit out of place because a lot of builds can't actually use it. Right, They're just yeah. sort of like, I don't know, they put me in my ceremonial armor. Yeah. <laughs> but like this character knows how to use it, knows how to like don it themselves and is very comfortable in it. Well, I love, you've, you're getting immunity to lightning and thunder damage. So <laughs> wearing full plate armor doesn't even make you vulnerable to like shocking grasp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, your power can't be used against you. And I also love the idea of, of a caster in full plate who's got like electricity kind of crackling through his or her armor, you know, just kind of like beating around it like, like water off a windshield. Yeah, like it, it, it tremors a bit, you know, because it's now like magnetically charged. Yeah. And I love that you're in full armor, but you fly. Right. Effortlessly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, even before you hit level 18 and you get actual flight, like your first level ability lets you move 10 feet at a time mm-hmm. through a gust of wind. So you're just extremely light on your feet. All right, if you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. And we do have a five-star review today. It's uh, Great Stuff Here, Five Stars, by Mighty Rocket. Top to bottom, one of the best RPG podcasts. From content to production quality, truly outstanding. Keep up the good work. All right, the middle's kind of meh. But top and bottom, both good. Hey, I mean, that's all you need. Yeah. So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We've got our in-depth review of Volo's Guide to Monsters. It's coming out on Thanksgiving, so you'll be able to avoid your family and listen to it. Or hang out with your family and have everyone listen to it. Don't do that. <laughs> and in the Character Creation Forge? We'll be skipping it because, man, we are going to get into this book. All right, that's it for episode 68 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>